It's Tuesday. It's sometime in the day. That means I've uploaded a new podcast. Ha <laughs> ha. Hi, guys. <clears throat> Excuse me. Welcome to What's for Dinner. Oh, what a great, great. First of all, um, today is December 22nd. Not only a great day because I'm uploading a podcast, <laughs> but also because um, it is my brother's birthday. My brother, Darren, uh, his birthday is today. So if my brother's listening, happy birthday to you. I love you. And um, also today I am still on the ship. Yes, I'm still on the Norwegian getaway through New Year's. So it's uh, been a been a great time so far. Allison was on me. Uh, was on me. Wow. Was on with me last week. Well, I guess she was on me too. But you're not going to hear that one. Um, and uh, had a great time. Hope you guys are enjoying yourself. Uh, getting ready for the Christmas. My Christmas always sucks because I'm Jewish. And that joke never gets old. But speaking of jokes that never get old, well, I don't even know if that made sense. This week on the podcast, I am so excited. Um, just, there's no other word than just icon to de- describe this guy. Actually, no, there's another word. Cool as all hell. I know that's three words, but consider it one phrase of words encompassing this man. Dana Carvey. I mean, what else to say? Dana fucking Carvey. Um, over the last, uh, uh, I met Dana a few years ago when I opened for him, when he was getting ready for his last special and he was very gracious and nice to me. And he enjoyed a couple of, uh, tags that means, uh, just like lines to add to some of his jokes. And, um, we re, uh, got, um, uh, reacquainted, got in touch again about, uh, I think earlier this year. And, um, he's now, uh, brought me into kind of his, uh, uh, writing circle to um, kind of help uh, his kids who we have had on the show Dex and Tom do some writing and so I know I'm rambling about this I just think it's so fucking cool that uh, that that I get to hang out and write with Dana Carvey so uh, Dana like I said one of the nicest coolest guys I've ever met uh, was cool enough to sit down with me and do my little rinky dink podcast and we talked about some cool stuff obviously a lot about SNL um, some of his experiences where some of the characters came from and we got really ph- uh, philosophical, you know, about life and career, and it was a, it was a very interesting uh, talk. I really, really enjoyed it, and I'm sure you will too. And if um, this is usually where I plug my future dates, but unless anybody's going to be on the Norwegian getaway over the next two weeks, you probably won't see me. But um, January 12th, hey, I'll be back in L.A., and uh, Allison and I will actually be doing the Comedy Juice show at the Irvine Improv. And then that weekend, the 15th and 16th of January... Skippy Green is going to be headlining over at the uh, Flappers in Burbank at the YooHoo Room, the little side room. It's a really, really fun room, and to have Skippy in there is going to be amazing. A lot of other dates on the books. You can check that out at the website, flipisfunny.com. All right, guys, I am definitely done rambling because I want you to hear this show. So sit back and relax. What's for Dinner, episode 174 with Dana Carvey, starts now. What's for dinner? What's for dinner? What, what's for dinner? Talking, talking about what's ever on their minds. Talking, talking about what's ever on their minds. Hello. Yeah, we're good. We're good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So anyway, um, you almost went too mellow there. Like anyway, chachi. <laughs> anyway, chachi. I'll just do this. We are literally uh, broadcasting. Or not brought you away. We're, we're uh, recording, recording live. We're re- recording live. The place live. I refer to as the bunker. It's hidden somewhere in Hollywood. Yes. This, yeah. 
This is, feels like if uh, if if this, Hitler and Ava Braun right. had like some feng shui, yeah, and a, <laughs> yeah, and a stylist, is, yeah, <laughs> this is weird. yeah, it's it's pretty minimalist. I don't know. I'm a minimalist. Are you? Because yeah. I noticed you don't have any art on the wall or anything. No pictures. Well, my wife would probably like to dress it up a little bit. I've only in my life wanted two things, you know, because I don't I don't have jewelry, cars. I mean, you're you're obviously highly materialistic incredible but, uh, incredibly <laughs> but uh <laughs> most comedians kind of aren't are they i don't know i'm only i'm, I'm a gadget phobe i like having cool gadgets that's yeah that, I'm, i basically want a big room with toys in it yeah gadgets that, would be part of that that's that's what i am yeah. I, you saw my car i give a shit about cars yeah and obviously the way i dress i know no. well my my gear it's not like i'm uh you know i don't know I can move around the world really stealthily, even though I was on TV a bit. Now, if I walked around as Garth, it'd be a problem. <laughs> but my gear is all based on being invisible, essentially. Because I know you're, you're always wearing dark, black and gray. I, I don't know why. <laughs> I'm not really against it. I always feel like I'm trying too hard with colors. <laughs> but I, it, the truth be told, I have a, a deep dislike for shopping. Like, if you wanted to wipe me out, if you and I were going to do a boxing match at 5 o'clock just, just for fun for the YMCA or mm-hmm. Gary Shanley or something, <laughs> boxes, you would want me shopping from 12 to 4 because then you would you just out. knock me out. Um, I'm kind of the same way. Like, I, again, unless it's something that, I'm, that I want, like, again, a gadget or, uh, yeah. you know, or if I'm, I was going to say if I'm getting something for my wife, but even that I kind of dread. Yeah, my Not wife that I don't wants, like buying things where I just don't like, like you said, the process of shopping. She wants to get me something nice for this Christmas, you know? Mm-hmm. And she's done uh, the sweats and all the things. That, you know, just toys in a room and gadgets yeah, be part of it. You know, I've got the keyboard down there mm-hmm. um, and the guitar. Those are just bare, minimal things. I have a V-drum up, up north in my house up there, which is a big electronic drum set. Oh, that's cool. Know? And, uh, yeah, I love just a place... I would love to the idea of a giant room where one side is kind of like a movie theater. This area is for recording and playing music, um, and then the other area just for gadgets, just for gadgets, fun. Yeah. And then a maybe a forty foot swimming pool outside. Um, yeah, that and that's all I think anybody wants. Well, I had it once and I never got it again, just by life circumstances. What you had a pool? We yeah, my wife and I's first house was in, was an Encino. Okay. Late 80s. Um, and it, uh, we built a guest house, which was soundproof, which I had a movie theater in there. Which, oh, cool. You know, before the digital, but it was projecting and the whole thing. Speakers everywhere, drum sets, all the stuff. And then there was a 35-foot pool. So we did that. And then a basketball court. Wow. So I kind of had that. But then we sold that in the night for crazy reasons. And then we were in New York doing the show with Louis C.K., Carell Colbert, and Smigel. This was like 97. Oh, yeah. The- yeah. And then we came back and we rented a house in um, Malibu. And then it was decided well, we should raise the kids up north. Then we went up there. And in Marin County, they're kind of like gorgeous tree forts, basically. Oh, they're beautiful. Yeah, yeah, but nobody... We had bought a house... Um, because I wanted this sort of dream, you know, but not that important. But I was I had it before, like a, a pool to swim laps in, you know, right. And a big room to have toys in. So it sounds like you had kind of like your 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 uh, for lack of a better term, kind of like your young new house. And then when you had the kids and you kind of got settled in adult life, you kind of had your life house well kind of but there's more details around that but that's a good guess all right <laughs> the house we bought up there was kind of as a summer house 
and it's nice, but it's not a mansion, but it's really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at one point we bought a house across north in the county in a place called Ross, which has flat parcels where you have a lot of grass, the guest house, the pool, the whole thing. And we actually bought it. Okay. But after buying it, we had buyer's remorse and we'd gotten so dug into our regular kind of leave it to beaver house, like mm-hmm. a regular person's house. Um, you know, I was heard that when Sean Penn and Robin Wright moved up there, they actually uh, looked over the fence. They were looking around Marin County at our house. It's not grand, but it's really cool. It's got redwood trees. And so then I did kind of run the numbers. Um, and I thought, wow, I'm just going to be working a lot for this house. Mm. And that was too much. I don't, this is exactly what I wanted to talk about. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> um but going back to yeah, but you gadgets, would, would, would you want a mansion? Like, no, you didn't sound, seem the type. No, not at all. Yeah, I, I don't want a mansion at all. I don't like big scary rooms. We rented haunted, weird. I don't know. I would like. It's barely important to me, really, because I I believe that you know you, um, you occupy a home or a room or a comedy club, but you live just in right here. This is all you in, got in you. Just this. That's all you got. Everything else is just fool's gold. No, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Like, but I would like a, and uh, I'm just gesturing to myself. <laughs> he said, uh, like a, a flat acre somewhere, just more like in, you know, up in San Inez or something with three small kind of cavity like places, you know? So yeah. Are you, are you like a kind of a more of a naturist? Well, I crave it every year I get older. And I'm from Montana originally, but like just we've been going up to Santa Inez, my wife and I from Hollywood, just because it's like, ah, mountains. So I crave it. No, we're the same. My wife and I, every year for our anniversary, we uh, try to go to like a different national park. Yeah. Like we've gone to Yosemite, which I love, Mm -hmm. and Sequoia, Sedona. We went to the Grand Canyon. And uh, I know exactly, like we also have a rule too when we do these. No electronics. We turn off. Right. The, they only use the cell phones for GPS just right. to get where we need to go. But we're in, we're cut off contact with yeah. everything, and yeah. I love it. I love just being out there and totally and yeah. totally. Yeah, totally. it's not because I would imagine you uh, more than most people because you're so kind of uh, uh, ingrained in this business. Like especially in Hollywood, it gets mm-hmm. such bullshit mm-hmm. that uh, it's hard. It's sometimes it's hard to not find yourself wrapped up in it. So to kind of have that escape out. So, yeah, I would say everything about just performing and doing the stuff is kind of quasi toxic in Hollywood. Yeah, oh, on some level. On some level, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, if I see my name somewhere, like uh, in print or anything, it just gives me the creeps. I find fame very weird and really uncomfortable. Like this weird character of Dana Carvey, <laughs> you know, and it's awkward. And yet, it, part of success in this world we're in is like getting famous in a right sense. it's this weird double it's kind of like a double-edged sword in that way because yeah. you're something that i think i i would guess that 98 percent of everybody who gets into our business is is uh striving to reach that level of fame mm-hmm. but from what i hear most people when they get there it's they say oh it's not you know what we were hoping it would be or it's uh <laughs> it's you know it's there there's a, a trade-off with it that you lose a lot it's like anonymity and and uh some some people lose, seem to lose a certain sense of self. When well, I, I think there's a, it's a that's where they have a podcast. But I, <laughs> I think that uh, besides the obvious, where you just want to go to Disneyland with your kids or go to the grocery store, and you may have people um, 
really excited. Although mine's tamped down, you know, I'm in a good place. I'm not complaining about it, but I think that it, it changes all your relationships. Personally, all my siblings became Dana Carvey's sister, uh, Dana Carvey's brother. So it was a huge, and then you're sitting up to my, to my mom and my dad. I think I became an idea a little bit. Like my really? brother said, once I wrote them a check, I, I ceased to become human. I, it was just sort of this, this separation, you know, um, isolation. I, I can only imagine how, you know, uh, people like Adam Sandler, a friend mm-hmm. of mine, Will Ferrell, you know, that I, I, I never was, I was maybe kind of where they were for about six months. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I kind of have a sense of it, but mm-hmm. I, they're just doing it. And, uh, and there's definitely a trade off, you know. Do you pref- do you prefer where you are now as opposed to the like that height? Oh yeah, I'm just trying to get a, a lot of things going. I think this is the best time for me in show business because of all these shows that kind of no one will ever see. To me, I think that's cool because I only only cared about twenty people: my <laughs> my brothers, my sister, my wife, you know, my kids, what they thought of my appearances or what I was doing. Mm-hmm. So I think it's the golden time oh. where you can be a what I call a famous non-famous person now. You could be at a party and like a guy could come up to you and they go, "Oh yeah, he's 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 huge right now. He's on the show, The Conundrum, <laughs> on the X One Next Network." You're like, "Oh okay, that's cool." When I <laughs> when I hit and was was uh, doing well, did they already Saturday cast a Conundrum? By the way, I was up for a part on that. Oh, you remember I was doing that. This is the fake show, right? <laughs> yeah. When I introduced, yeah, did I introduce you that way? He's just started in The Conundrum. No, on, I didn't. On, ever oh that. yeah. On the uh, Yours and Mine Network? <laughs> no, it was Mark Pitta in Vegas. I'd say, please welcome. He's just starting his seventh season of I've Had Just About Enough of You on the <laughs> Yours and Mine Network. And everyone applauded. And that's only more true every year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's just an oversaturation of, of shows out there. Yeah. It's shows are getting made that never would have got made. I mean, if you look at just Amazon's uh, original program, just their pilots and just... Just people acting with cameras and looks good and pretty mm-hmm. funny. And you're like, what human being has kind of ever seen this? You know, those with Amazon. It's like if 150,000 people see something you do in America, did, did it really happen? You know, it doesn't even make a, like a blip on the uh, yeah. proverbial. So I think art. it's a great time. Obviously, the golden age, the best, best, best time to be able to do all this stuff. A, a, th- a thousand base hits. But home runs are harder to come from. Yeah, it seems that way. Some people are doing it though. But, but yeah, like, and you've seen because you've really seen kind of the uh, the 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 bell curve like really grow as far as uh, it's like comedy and showbiz. Because when you because uh, you you uh, started comedy in the Bay Area, right? Yep. And um, I remember you told me a story that the week before you got SNL, you were doing comedy at a pizza place. Yeah, I I played. It was in July. I think it was in Martinez up in Northern California in mm-hmm. a pizza parlor. Yeah, I'd done clubs and stuff, but it was a one night. It was a one night. No one yeah. showed up. It was like a couple hundred buck type gig, and um, like and did you you found out the night you were doing it or after you had done the show? No, I just like a couple weeks later I'd auditioned at for Laura Michaels. Oh, okay. But it was in the same month. Oh, I got you. I got you. And then how soon after you auditioned did you find out you got cast? Well, I, I kind of I, I felt like I was in good position after that because I had Lauren Michaels see me at um, a, a club because Igby's on the west side, mm-hmm. which is yeah. like, you knew about Igby's, oh, yeah, yeah. 100 seat club for people listening that are comedy freaks. Um, but it was a pretty legendary Bay Area club. No, this was down here. Yeah. Oh, there was. Oh, that's fuck. I forgot. Yeah, that's right. There was I was kind of going back and forth then. I had okay. a little apartment down here. Yeah. Okay, okay. So I auditioned in L.A., which I had. I was seen in San Francisco once by Al Franken. 
at the punchline really the year before but you know i don't think i had that good a set i didn't blame al al later on said ah, i made a mistake you know i go no i don't <laughs> think so i wasn't that because my act which is even to this day underwritten and maybe i just have i have a lot of performance chops i've developed mm-hmm. um so and especially in those days if i wasn't on or if i was a little nervous i could go i could get really pretty bad pretty quick you know my act right now is just it's underwritten and it's mostly attitude and confidence because i don't care you know i mean i care but, but i don't you, it, I, you don't have that desperation it's underneath. a different yeah. sport you know when yeah. you're 60 and famous because no one expects anything from me it is kind of interesting it is and it's, i'm sure i didn't expect i don't look at I don't know. I, I I didn't want to name anybody, but you just look at people. You know, are they going to make a move now? Is is, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just any of my peers. Are they going to explode? You know. Um, but you feel that uh, at this point you're not. Um, it's it's like uh, I was going to say. Uh, did you ever see comedian the Seinfeld documentary? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's when uh, Colin Quinn was uh, talking about. You know, he goes, you know, Jack Nicholson, he can go on stage and the audience will give him, you know, five, ten minutes because it's Jack Nicholson. But after that, you know, they're thinking, OK, you got to bring it on now, fucker. Right. And it's, it's, it seems like it's that what you were saying before is that same kind of thing. Like you get up there in the audience, not that they're not expecting much, but they're giving you kind of this grace period of, you know, it's Dana Carvey. Yay. And but then after that, uh, it's it still seems like they're uh, they're along with you on the ride because. Uh, you, you, I think you do prove yourself. I think you're not giving yourself enough credit. I uh, no, I think I'm better than now than I was before. Yeah, but I'm not as I'm not quite as in shape mentally. I, I feel like I need to do more sets. I mean, there was some back before I did for SNL. I was doing 25 headlining sets a month, wow. for months after month, because you do eight shows a week. Just in the and no, the West Coast, Bay or? Area, uh, Seattle under uh, Comedy Underground in Seattle. Mm-hmm. I would do four weeks there, and I do the Punchline and Cobb's Pub and other cafe and San Jose, and and then you know I would go to Phoenix down here, San Diego Improv. So but, a lot, but all West Coast stuff. Pretty much, I went to Houston and where I had um, Bill Hicks open for me a couple times. Got oh a yeah, kick out of him. The Laugh Stop. Uh, Spellbinders. Spellbinders. Wow, you remember that? Oh yeah. Because I used to have this bit about my dad's spankiness um, and how we'd put on, because it's true, my brother Brad used to put on uh, a, a many, many pairs of underwear if he knew he was going to get a spanking. <laughs> so it was about the Carvey boys, the big butt Carvey boys, because we always were wearing massive amounts of underwear. I mean, ridiculous. <laughs> but when I came back, they had made a mural of it, of the big uh, butt Carvey the... <laughs> boys. Can you imagine what Bill H- Hicks thought of me, you know? <laughs> But at this point, I find it that the shiny toy that is any kind of creativity for me and stand up being one of them is still I'm amazed that I I find it very interesting. So but what I'm doing right now in my stand up is trying to find a way to have use all my same tools, but make myself more interested. And because you don't want to try to be edgy or try to be relevant, but it is things I think about and I'm trying to make it funny. So that's a challenge for me. So I find stand-up very interesting. You know, I, I have my, um, you know, greatest hits for SNL primarily and stuff. So right. it's sometimes if I'm doing a corporate event or Vegas, I do feel a different than some of the dates we've done in a 70-seat club, uh, kind of riffing or at the Ice House or Flappers, mm-hmm. you know. So I feel like... Um, so I feel a um, certain obligation to the kind of more high profile gigs yeah i I would just say for me and and you know this it's interesting i'm you know when i when i think about that i had never done sketch 
when I got on Saturday Night Live. I don't. You'd like never done sketch? No. There was no groundlings up there, nothing. Never done a sketch. But I instinctually was doing little sketches in my stand-up. Yeah. Which was very difficult in comedy clubs. But in the other cafe, in the hate, it was like 70 seats, uh, no hard liquor. These was important, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I find for myself, even at this point of my so- so-called career, I... Uh, <laughs> I uh, an awful show from the 90s. My so-called career was a spinoff of my so-called life, I believe. Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, it, com- it premiered right after Conundrum. Conundrum, okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know how I'm being very philosophical, but it's sort of like the idea of the sword you fall on. Like, I, I think that when I was in that studio at SNL, I just had the stand-up mentality of kill them on a Saturday Night Pack show, meaning huge laughs that's the goal of the headliner right 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 because right. you're fighting for your, your life and sometimes i'd have alu bell levitate the room as my middle act so and i i'm unknown and al is singing i'm alu bell and al is a great guy oh i love, I love al, that yeah. and he and he he killed he opened for me one week at uh laughs unlimited and, and you know the uh the dressing room shared a wall with the comedy room Okay. At one point. And I'm sitting there by, by myself, and I just... And just really shaking. I wanted to do a short film about it. I mean, just... Decimating and, the room. So I did get in that thing of wanting to please, in a good sense, and wanting to kill. And sometimes I would probably do things I wasn't proud of. I Maybe I'd pander a little bit, or I'd be a little bluer than I really thought. Sometimes I'd feel a little icky about certain moments. Not all. Mm-hmm. Um, when I got into the small rooms, I started doing stuff I was a little more proud of. you know. But I, I would say if I could move the needle slightly more toward not being quite as needy with an audience, that would be more enjoyable for me. Not thinking I have to destroy them but i i want to i want to get them helpless with laughter because i still think that's the hardest thing to do absolutely you know that's just hard absolutely um but i kind of want to be a little more my authentic true to yourself sorry to sound like oprah no no (laughs) but but, you know this is this quest that everybody young comedians that are starting out in the middle and wherever and even uh people uh, who are you know kind of uh, most brilliant people around right now, like Louis C.K. and stuff, or Patton Oswalt. I'm sure they're thinking the same thing. How can they wind it to some other place? You know. Well, I think that's always the. Uh, uh, I, I hate to say problem, but uh, challenge uh, and goal for I think any comedian who's worth their salt is to always try to top themselves. Yeah. And to decimate an audience, but yet, like you said, staying true yeah. to what you uh, you feel. And you, you find you, you wanted, funny. Yeah, yeah, that you find funny and you want to be as a comedian. Because like yeah. you said, you can, I'm sure you know, there are so many tricks that you can do to get the get that laugh from the audience. Club, club comics, and sometimes you'll see them get specials, uh, you know, kind of low-rent specials, and uh, they're just, it deflates like a balloon on, on the TV screen. Right. But in the room with the low ceiling, just working the crowd. It, it's you know, killing. Yeah, it, it's it's just destroying. So after a while, yeah, it becomes kind of a different um, a different goal in a way. Absolutely. Um, um. Now you, but you had said something interesting when you were on SNL. You said you had that headliner mentality, like you uh, you always felt you had to destroy the room, destroy the room. Yeah, I mean, I think the people with the sketch background are more coming from ideas, or the groundlings, or UCB. They they would all kill too. Mm-hmm. But I was only in the clubs. So then I'm out there doing a sketch or doing an in one to camera. And I just think I had a sense that I must kill, you know. 
Now, what, what did you? <laughs> no, as, as anybody would. I, yeah. I doubt anybody goes no. on SNL going, uh, I'd like to, you know, just get in there. Little, well, if you look at Eddie bit. Murphy, like his style, you know, James Brown, the hot tub, that's just like electric killing stuff. Right. You know, and he did a lot of that. I think later on, uh, my last two seasons, I relaxed a little bit. And when I was doing Carson with Phil Hartman, I never pushed in that sketch. And I, it was kind of my favorite sketch to do because I wasn't pushing. No, it was it. There, I think that sketch is all about subtlety. Yeah, and yeah. letting them come to me. And I yeah. didn't. I knew it was so funny that they were. Some things are too funny to laugh at. At the time, those are the probably the funniest things that you can't. You you just can't even believe what you're hearing, and then you're going to laugh for a lot lot later right. <laughs> and a lot more. Right. So Carson going for those of you at home. Um, you are watching a television, which is being beamed over a, a wire. Is that right? You know, just that attitude. I didn't care if it was laughs per minute. I just knew it was so funny. And right. I had Phil there. It was always the laugh button. But the reason I liked doing that sketch is because I all that desperation and fear was gone by the time I got toward the last couple seasons. You know, in the beginning, you're just like, is this going to get canceled? Am I going to do any good? Right. I could imagine those first two seasons when you're a new guy on there, there's just pressure beyond. It's a three ring circus. It doesn't, you never, I I, I would sit there sometimes during dress rehearsal and go, wow, this will be the one that won't go on. It'll just be a (laughs) test pattern because things are falling down. People are missing cues. It's all, we're we're playing to silence, you know? Yeah. That's got to be weird too. Like, did you guys just kind of trust that the last were going to be there for most of those sketches? We we didn't. We were just we didn't know. A lot of times we just were going. The show would play really weak on the dress show. Lauren would cut four or five sketches. We do a few little punch up, and you'd get an audience with a little more energy and kind of hook them the other way. And then they go, "Oh, we like this show." Wow. But you know, I mean, there were ones. The one that was one of the most humiliating in my first season, me and Matthew Broderick, he was the host, okay. and it was he and I and a few others. So we're dressed with bonnets in big diapers. <laughs> and we're doing a sketch and it's bombing horribly is this during the dress or live this was i believe it was live well, maybe it was dress but anyway when they went to the commercial break we had to walk by everyone in our big diapers and bonnets <laughs> and we played so silent i did i was new to the show i kind of looked up at someone in the bleachers went, what's up and they kind of looked the other way that's how bad it was <laughs> wow anyway. i was just talking about carson real quick because one of my favorite sketches that you did was carcinio yes was that your idea no that I mean, Carson was. I started doing Carson around the office. And then weird, wild stuff. All that the the new character of Carson, mm-hmm. and then Smigel loved it, and I think Conan might have jumped in on that one potentially, but Smigel was kind of my partner in in Regis, uh, the McLaughlin group. Oh God, yeah. Carson, so that was a goldmine for me because he he and I had the same sense of humor about rhythms and stuff. Oh, and but he's fantastic. Be, yeah, he's probably the best. If you had to say like a guy, you if you're gonna do an all-star comedy sketch writing team, like you guy, you might have to pick him first. <laughs> you know, I I mean, would, would. he'd be right up there. Um, so that was really fun. So yeah, the Carcino thing was really inspired. Yeah, and I mean, simple, that was... but yeah, just so a crib is not uh, that's not a bed. Is that it? Yeah, and I had the big finger with the elongated fingers. Yeah. Yeah, that was another one where you're kind of like everything was really coming together for me on the show and the show itself with Mike Myers and Sandler. Yeah, I, you know, the show was just really cooking in that early 90s, 90, 91, 92. 90, right. Really I think that it's funny because I like, you know, I I was a fan of SNL for so long. Um, and I think if you really look back at it, like I think your your era 
and um, part of Farrell's era. Mm-hmm. Those are the timeless sketches. You know, I think like a lot more now are too topical. They kind of lose their oomph as time goes by because it might be a little too political or a little too uh, pop culture at the time. Um, mm-hmm. I think, uh, like like I said, the Carcinio, Head Wound Harry, Massive Head Wound Harry, all of those sketches, I think no matter how long time goes by, kind of maintain that uh, that 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 laugh, that real, you know, that, that, that uh, if you will, humor nugget. That well, that was, it, was a, it was a dog, you know, the massive head one Harry was a brilliant concept and then the dog going crazy. And so, you, you know, I had a choice on the air show. I had the fake head on and the dog, the sketch was really killing. The dog was going to pull because they put more food on the, on the <laughs> fake prosthetic bloody skull. The dog was going to pull the whole thing off my head. <laughs> so if you watch it for you freaks out there, I had a choice to have it pull it off. And then I thought the sketch would become about that. So if you see, I'm letting it pull, but I'm holding it right here. Right, right, right. Because I didn't want it to become about that. Same thing when Sam So you made that decision like right then and there? Live, yeah, to hold it. Wow. Because I go, it's coming off. But then the sketch would have been about... When, when a sketch is mediocre and it goes off, who cares? But when a sketch is really cooking the way it was supposed to be... Right. It's like when Sandler and I... When I came back and Adam and I did Pepper Boy, and that was just peaking on air. It was just everything. Baby, you lie, you know. And he's hilarious, and we're running around. It's going great, and I headbutt him and all that. And then we go over to Farley, and Farley, you know, would you like a pepper? What? Thank you, pepper boy. <laughs> so if you see it, Sandler, I see him starting to break. He's right next to me. Right. And I don't know if you, I, I guess you can't hear it, but I leaned into him and I said, "Don't break." <laughs> With the, in the Italian, because I thought the sketch was so good, I didn't want it to become about, about the break. Yeah. yeah, but we were kind of trained that way. Even on the 40th, Mike Myers and I were doing Wayne's World, mm-hmm. and uh, we're pulling the cards out, the top 10, and somehow the whole thing came out. So, Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, but we both started, which I guess the way we were trained, we both just started ad-living in character, you know, as opposed to us breaking. But some of the funniest things, I'm, I'm envious that they can break now. You know, I think Sandler started it, then Fallon, and, and Fallon. then, and I, 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 we were just scared to break. Lauren did not want us to break. I heard uh, you guys got like fined or something if you broke. I just thought it would just be just wrong. It, it just Lauren said it's just so fucking Carol Burnett, you know. <laughs> but you know, who could? You can't not laugh at Harvey Corman. Oh, and Tim, Tim Conway, Con- God, geniuses. Oh my God, yeah. just that. That's another show that I think is timeless too. The uh, Carol Burnett. Like yeah. who? Who were your like influences when? Well, you know, I I I've like, always find it kind of interesting because when people are talking about that, everyone wants to claim an influence that's cool, you know. So they want to say, you know, uh, Pryor, Lenny Bruce, whatever, Mort right. Saul, you know. But truth be told, I was just you know just this kid in the suburbs. So I was watching Jackie Gleason Variety Show. Okay, you know, and he's doing that, and everyone's laughing. And around that time, the Danny Kay show, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Carol Burnett show came up later in the decade. Flip Wilson was like right around that time. Smothers Brothers, I would watch that. Oh, yeah. You know, I watched, um, I used to think uh, Wild Wild West was really cool. And there's the side, <laughs> the sidekick is Artemis Gordon, and he was the kind of master of disguise. Oh, the, it's the Western. Right, know. right, right. Will so, Smith, Kevin Klein did that. Uh, did a movie. Movie. Work, that but, awful the, but the show was just great, and he was a master of disguise, and he's got. So um, 
when I was doing the Tom Snyder show in the 90s, he said, you know, who, who were your biggest influences, you know? And so I mentioned um, Ross Martin, who played Artemis Gordon, and then got a nice note from his widow. He said, no, oh, one, no nice. one ever mentions Ross. Oh, that's you know? nice. But th then, then later on, when I first, um, you know, saw Andy Kaufman on, doing the foreign characters, like, it wasn't jokes. I, I, was, I was, you know, and that blew my mind. And then when I, when I heard uh, Carlin... And, and that it wasn't really jokes. It was just this observational rhythms and, right. you know, um, and then, uh, and then of course, Steve Martin was hitting too. And it's all those guys, um, Billy Crystal, I remember him on the tonight show doing a character with a piano and stuff. Mm -hmm. So that really lit me up. And, and then Rob Williams was really the godfather of our scene up there in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. He hit big on Mork and Mindy, but he would always go back and forth. And, um, he was another, like, just, because you kind of like when you, he would ex so explosive and as a comedian you're kind of thinking well okay so that's that's as hard as i've ever seen in one kill how can i do that at right. the time of course i never could so but i was always inspired by by him um and then i finally slowed myself down because i i had i had i had uh a trunk with props because Robin had a trunk with props, you know, and he did the accents. I did the accents. So finally later so on. So you tried to emulate Robin. Totally. But then I realized no one was that fast or that had what he had. So I did eventually kind of slow things down like Chopping Broccoli and Church mm -hmm. Lay. Just I, I did characters, but they were way, way slowed down. So, um, but did, yeah, those did, were kind of my influence. What about, well, I'm trying to think your era. You'd be, as well, far as stand-ups, you came up. To be honest, Robin you. was. I was funny. I was just talking to my mother-in-law about this. Robin was the first comic I ever saw live, like a live comedy performance oh. of. It was, I think, it was '84 live at the Met. Yeah, when you did the live at the mm -hmm. Met, and because uh, I was always a funny kid, like mm -hmm. I knew, you know, I was always funny. I loved making people laugh. And but until I saw Robin, I didn't realize you could do this kind of for a living. Like that was an actual option. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, I remember live at the Met was kind of like that little epiphany moment for me as a kid and then i did stand up mm -hmm. when i was eight in a talent show kind of uh based a little on wow, okay. what i saw so, with robin yeah so, yeah but so, robin howie mandel steve martin yeah those are my initial and then i got older and discovered like catskill guys like burl and caesar and <laughs> shecky yeah. green like i love i love those throwbacks i love that that kind of bygone era of comedy well as a kid um when abbott and costello meets frankenstein that was a big movie when oh, it would yeah. come on you didn't know when it was going to come on, you know. So, and I always loved the Jerry Lewis, Dean Martin movies. The, you see the Black, the Bowery Boys, right? All those kinds of things. Um, I have, I have. They did one. They go in the army, like Martin Lewis in the army, or something. Yeah. I have, a, I have that at home. I ha haven't watched it yet, but I was. Yeah, you can just see this, discovering old the, the flexible, spastic energy of Jerry Lewis. It, it just popped off the screen, you know. Well, I think what what was great about them was just it was the, the perfect kind of. Martin was a perfect straight man to Lewis. Yeah. Like that's what, and each one of them made the other one shine. Yeah. You oh, know, totally. I, it was always the same thing with the Marx Brothers. Like you yeah. have uh, Groucho, Harpo, and uh, Chico, and then you have Zeppo as the uh, straight guy. And right. again, that balance, I think, worked. Yeah. For and everybody also Margaret involved. Dumont. They did just the great. Oh, and Margaret Dumont. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Apparently, she was, what made her so wonderful is that she never really knew the joke. She never knew why it was funny. Yeah. She just thought these guys were idiots. So. Yeah, it, and her so, character was also her, so that's why it's translated so well into film. Yeah, they were so wooden. If you look at like a W.C. Fields film and The Cop, or you know, uh, some of the Chaplin stuff, um, 
the straight people were just bad actors and just yeah. just just wooden straight people. I, I don't see that enough anymore. I kind of miss it as a form. I, I do too. Really, 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 really straight people with a- anarchists around. Right, right, right. Because a lot of times it's just a lot of comedians, you know, which is can be brilliant in its own way. But the, like the Marx Brothers. But yeah, I like that form. But you know, it'll it's here. I'm sure it's I'm missing where it, the last one that's done that. But like as far as a straight man in a comedy. Yeah. Team? Yeah. It'd know. be like a cop thing or the cops very straight. Yeah, I guess in a way, twenty one jumps for that. Uh yeah. Mm-hmm. Talk about the movie or the Johnny Depp series? The movie. Ah. But um anyway, so I was influenced by all those all those guys, I think too. And uh and were and you, Jonathan Winters too, of course oh, God. Robin always but I Oh yeah. Um I saw him on his little improv show in sixty eight. And I had a little tape recorder. I finally saved a little money and got my parents to buy me a little it was a, a Craig. Craig tape recorder, reel to reel, this big, so I could tape off TV, off the TV, and then practice. I did that too. You did too. Yeah, I didn't uh, have a reel to reel. I had an old uh, just cassette. Yeah, you'd be generation up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. I used to. Uh, it had one of those. Um, it was, I think, it was my grandfather's old cassette player or recorder, and had one of those cheap little microphones that went into it. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, with a little button. On with the, the side. button exactly, yeah. and I used to set it up uh, next to my parents' TV because I was the only ones that had cable in the house, and I'd put it up against the speaker and I'd tape like. Well, the time I tape like MTV music, like uh, I tape the music off MTV so I can listen to it later. Wow. And I tape like some if I stayed up late, some Tonight Show sets or Saturday Night Live sketches. Huh. And when you were in high school, were you in theater then? And oh stuff? yeah. Okay. See, I never did any of that. I just ran track and would make my friends laugh. I was too intimidated, too introverted, really, to go out for. So what made you get on stage then? Um, I just had moved out. I was 20. I'd done two years at community college. I saw something in the paper. I always dreamed of doing it, but was incredibly scared and shy to do it. And I saw something in the paper, local comedians, unknown. So I went with, I got some friends to go with me in Berkeley just to see. And I was, I was completely entranced and mesmerized by the idea of a comedian that I, it's not famous on a stage in a little tiny hippie dive in Berkeley. And I went on that first night because they had open. Do you mic. remember who the other comedians were? That Robin. Night? Really? Yeah. So your first time at a club was yeah. Robin. Mm-hmm. Wow. In the middle of the show, he comes up and just decimates the room, basically doing all the, a lot of stuff he did on his first special. Just just total oh, at, at the Roxy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's doing so, oh, attack of the dildo, whatever, and, and and running around and picking things up. That the the, the uh, conceit of what he kind of did was that sense of like. This isn't planned. I don't even know where I'm going. Right. And of course he had construct, but there was that that so it was wild to see someone that confident. He didn't even really use the mic. Just wandered just around. Just wander around the look the moon like a testicle hangs low in the sky. Oh, I must have heard that a thousand oh. times. Or his beret. For those for those of you on Nessa, this, this is, is a frisbee. A frisbee. Yes. You know that one, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh classic. Seating for four in a gay bar. <laughs> uh, anyway, so um, it, no it, one knows how Robin got that voice that british accent growing up in detroit marin i know was sort of a british lord a little, yes, a little bit very very fantastic very, very nice very nice but he had that that what i i was i tell the story too because uh the first time i met rob well the second time i met robin was uh, at the throckmorton up mm-hmm. in uh yeah marin and mm-hmm. he was uh i was closing the show and he had dropped by to be like mm-hmm. a special guest after me so i know yeah. i you know talked to him briefly in the green room but i was on stage and uh you know in the throck they have the balcony in that like dark mm-hmm. corner where the sound booth is up on the top. Mm-hmm. And I was doing some bit, and then from off in the darkness, I hear, <laughs> Yeah, and I, I just know. remember he thinking, was... Oh my God, Robert Williams is laughing. You always at my knew eye. he was there. You always knew that laugh. Yeah, it's yeah. It's an unmistakable laugh. 
Yeah. So wow, it really chose you then, basically. Oh yeah, yeah. It was I was you know, I was born with it. I I knew uh, just I knew it's one of those I can't mm-hmm. place it. It's just one of those inherent things right. that I just knew. It's funny how we all get spoiled, and you always have to go back to the original touchstone. Is wow, could this be my job on the planet? Right. Whether I I make twenty grand or or five million, but can this just be? Can this I, be what I do? What I would get as a waiter at the time would have been like fifteen hundred a month, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's eventually I got close. Like I was making like seven hundred a month in stand up, and I quit. The, I quit the waitering. Yeah. That's good, but that's uh, so. That was what mid seventies, late yeah, late seventies when I quit waitering. Yeah, when I was like twenty four. Wow. So you were okay, twenty four, still waitering. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Was that? I mean, did, like that moment. Do you remember that exact moment when you went, "All right, this is. I'm going to do this now." Oh like, yeah, what? yeah. I mean, the the phrase I tell people is like, "I knew that I'd rather fail at trying to do this than succeed at anything else." So to me. It, People go, wow, this is risky, and I never understood that because yeah, I wasn't either. trying to start a family and buy a home. Right. I was like, well, I'll just do this, and I'll, I thought I'd go to thirty and see if I, I give myself ten years to see if I could make a living at it. And um, so that was always yeah. the, so. I, and I think again, I think for everybody who gets into this, that that's the initial goal: can I make a living doing this? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Can I be filthy rich? Can I? be above surviving doing this you know be totally be, be yeah. kind of comfortable doing this yeah yeah because and it's an absurdly ridiculous it, way to, to make a living i you know. i sometimes i really just stop and think like this this is the strangest job in the world it's yeah. we're, we we are getting paid sometimes more than people who work a lot harder than us mm-hmm. just to make people laugh right that's a career Right. It's like if if you really stop, because for, I don't know for for me, it's I'm so wrapped up in this world that I talk to other comics, and you know we talk about oh this gig is you know we're going here and we're getting this and we're flying here to do this, and it's just day to day for us. It's normal. But then yeah. when I talk to my friends who aren't in the business, right. and they're like, wait wait wait, you you flew to Anchorage, Alaska for a week. They paid for you to fly up there and you got paid money. Right. Like yeah, it's just a gig. He goes, do you realize I have to work two weeks to make what you. And yeah. th- and that's when I go, holy shit! This is a very strange thing that we do. Yeah, that have, I think a, a a select few of us are really able to do it. Well, Lorne Michaels always has some quotes about that, and he just turns about funny people. He said, "Um, there's only nine hundred of us on the planet." <laughs> you know, that's the way his number that he picked. But yeah, it's a very rare thing to want to face it down. I mean, it depends. I had really, really horrible stage fright for really? years. Yeah just would be sweating all day and palms would be bright red throat would turn bright red and yeah it took me you know i just had a lot of well, stage it was just a fear of bombing or just, just actually getting fear up there? being on stage fear of bombing fear of just stage fright just seems normal i mean most people would be terrified if you took someone from our audience and we're gigging like okay you're gonna you 10 minutes. There, yeah you know to make it look easy and fun and be in control just usually takes time that's yeah. the work and then sometimes later on you get this really easy gig where you slip in you get a lot of money to slip out, and then like, whoa! But, right, but right. you still have to build that that other thing, that scary part, you know. I still like it. For me, I and I I know this is true to you, but I I still enjoy the process of it. I still well, I know it's fantastic. Uh, yeah, it it, yeah. It, it like um I think we talked about this, and you even mentioned it before. It's like it it when you come up with a new concept, a new punchline, a new whatever. It's like having a new toy. Yeah, and you just can't wait to play with it. Yeah, you know, and I I remember when I was younger and I was writing, and I remember like the first 
like killer joke I thought of then I mm-hmm. I knew like uh you know when I tried it a few times and I knew it was killing I could not wait to get to that joke and like I said play with it and show off my new toy right and you know 20 years later I still get that excitement when I come up with a great new idea and bit well do you ever get these other part of writing which you know I've it's I was doing Saturday Night Live show. it was a show Saturday and where you came through it and through it and through it and at a certain point it's it's a little bit of it's a little uncomfortable because you're like you you're looking at a crossword puzzle like i need something right here i don't have it right and then you sort of skip over it come back around like do you do you riff you, you do you do a thing where you kind of think of an idea riff it at a, a low-key club thing and then come around and actually do you because I know you've got a notebook that's nobody has a notebook like you, <laughs> but your main bits are they written out in long form, just completely written out as if they were a sketch, yeah. or are they bullet points? But there a lot of them are written out word for word, right? And then you play with them. Yeah, that pretty, pretty much when I come up with a with an idea, I'll uh, like my first my, my first step is if I, if I come up with an idea and I'm like, okay, that's a funny thought what's the punch what's what what do i know the joke is going to lead to sometimes i'll reverse right you know i'll come up with a great line like oh that's good how would i get there and i kind of start with the punch and work Mm -hmm. up to the setup but when i have that down um i'll go in my notebook and just stream a conscious stream of conscious just write the bit just like it's it's usually very long and wordy Mm -hmm. um but i'm sure to you know get to the joke that i that i know is the, the the meat of it right and then I'll kind of read over it and I'll go, oh, you know what, that I don't need that word. Or, oh, you know, it'd be better if this part came first. So some of my notes, you'll see like lines being drawn. Mm-hmm. And then I'll, yeah, I'll go to a low key club with the idea and kind of, you know, a little bit structured in my head word wise. Yeah. And then I'll talk it out on stage. And sometimes as I'm talking and I'm just riffing it in the moment, another funny thing will just come out of my mouth or a right. gesture yeah. or a facial expression or, uh, you know, uh, or, or when I get to the sometimes when I get to the punchline, the punchline doesn't even work. But the setup, there's something funny in the setup. Yeah. So then I look back at it and I li- and I record all my sets. So I listen back how I said it and like, oh, I went up on that word. That's a fun laugh there too. And then over usually if I really like the bit and I know that there's something there, I'll give it like four or five times. And after the fifth time, if if there's something really uh, like strong and substantial there, I know I've got a nice new bit. Jeez, you know and then from there i kind of branch out like i was talking about the temple jokes right, i yeah. get that temple laugh and then i kind of you know riff a lot riff a little bit in the setup before and after yeah and see oh, what comes good. out i mean that's kind of what you have to do a lot of times i'll just come up with stuff and if i the audience is very excited sometimes if i do voices yeah and sometimes i'll just forget about bits that you could riff to a point, but at some point you need to sit with the puzzle, even for like a couple hours and go, yeah. okay, what is, cause I just had this, uh, it's not a very big deal, but it was just Obama hiring the mob to fight ISIS. You know? oh. And so then the first part of the joke is just Obama calling the mob, Frankie, the fish, this is president <laughs> Obama. So then you, so then you need like lines in there. Right. Know? Right. Right. You know, two ton, Tony, Frankie the fish, whatever. What we need you to do, you know. So that's the first part. So if, when I start doing that, I'm just getting laughs because I've never written it down anywhere. <laughs> I've only done it a couple times. I just forgot. I just remembered it today for some reason. And then it's like, okay, so the mob is in the desert and they're facing down ISIS. That's Yo, funny. Yo, ISIS. Hey, you cut off heads, we'll cut you in a thousand pieces. So I have it. So there, I just by riffing, and then sometimes if I'm lazy, I'll just say, what the fuck you, you think, you know, you think we're scared of you? But I've never come back around and um 
just sat with it to kind of come up with some just more punchlines that you can't riff on the spot because you can riff in a certain way, but then if you run out of riffing, sometimes you go blue. Right. You know. Anyway, that's just an example of something that I would I thought of today. Like I should just sit sit on that. Like okay, Obama calling them. That's really funny. That's Their funny. response to Obama. Maybe they don't get it. You want us to do what? You know. So maybe there's that. And then there's them. Are they? You know, are they really hot? Are they just, you know, beefy, you know, guys say, boss, it's getting hot out of here. Where's these fucking ISIS guys? You know, I don't know. So it's just, you know, for guys named ISIS, it's not, there's no ice out here. I ain't cold or nothing. Why are they called hotsis? Yeah. And I was sometimes try to come back to the, you know, sort of the emotional core of it is that it's cathartic because ISIS plays by their own rules. Right. And we, we're kind of like, you know, King's Rules. Man, we'll fire upon you, you know what I mean? But we won't attend these. And then to have, like, guys who are just that as not not intimidated. And that's where you want to find the joke. Right, Because that's right. really, really the, uh, you know, we're, yeah, yeah, yeah. We cut off, we cut off Tony Tuto said, you know what? He sh- his head should have got cut off. <laughs> I'm going to give you a 10 spot. You know, just the, 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 rather than fear, because right. that's what everyone's thinking. What are we up against? And they're so brutal, they, you know, so... No, it's, but that, that's a very funny. Uh, that's, a, that's a very funny idea. It's a funny very, idea, but it has that emotional engine underneath the cathartic part of it. Right, 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 right. You know? But that's it. So, so you approach it. You approach com uh, like those bits more just. Uh, I guess as compared to me, less uh, uh, confined as far as creating. Like you find your you, you find it just to be a little more. Uh... I think I I think I just I'm really lazy. I mean I think that <laughs> I'll be in a, a, a if I'm trying it out the ice house so it's packed 200 seats low ceiling mm-hmm. and you're up there and you got the mic and you just just riffing. I just think to take it to the next level you just want to sit with it a little bit, sit with the notes a little bit. That's all. And I find you are really um, you know extremely disciplined and really funny. So the two oh. together are very potent. I mean all your bits are worked out and then you can be playful. Right, you know, I mean, the SNL sketches. We we didn't we didn't get to like page two for a section and go. Well, we'll just kind of riff through there. We're like, you know, it was it's very applying regimented. that discipline. I think just I I were you. I mean, because I assume when you're getting ready for specials and everything, you have to be that disciplined. I I got better. I got better. Um, I think that I was doing so many corporate dates that it's, leading up to the. Last the special? last special. It just that was because I was being offered a fortune. I was trying to secure my financial fortune for an extended family, <laughs> you know. And they it was so. I think it's a little distortive when you do just too many corporate dates or really. Um, you know, I play big theaters or in Vegas, big rooms, mm-hmm. and really because when I've gone out with my sons doing stand up in these small rooms, I discovered I do stuff that I wouldn't do in a big room. Like the other night I was doing me as the godfather talking to my relatives. Right. But I, I don't think I could get that to work in a big room um, unless it was stadium. They're just close in because it's kind of subtle. It's hard to hear. And so uh, my point is the size of the room really affects my writing. Just like before I got to the 60-seat hippie club with a sober audience, you know, I was doing more Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, well, I'll fuck you up there. You know, that kind of... Because I was in honky-tonk bars. I was at... Uh, Rooster Tea Feathers, mm-hmm. and just the blenders going, drinks are flying. Oh, they yeah, wanted the show to last four hours. Oh, that's that's a f- that that uh, those are bloodbaths. Those are yeah. fucking boxing matches where you're just hitting wherever you can. And since I just wanted to survive, it just influenced how I wrote. 
you know? Right. And so now coming up to the special I'm going to shoot, whether I shoot it in May or I might have to do it in the fall. I don't know if you can shoot a special in the summer because of the heat, you know, <laughs> heat, yeah. the sweaty audience, but um, I'll see. But um, since I've been doing all these small rooms, I find my ideas are just more interesting to me right now overall. I don't even know if they're funnier or better or worse, but they're more interesting because I'm in small rooms. See, I think I honestly think that when a comic is more interested and um, uh, ah, what's I? Why am I flaking on this word? Um, excited about their ideas. Excited, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, 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 attached and uh, yeah. invested, yeah. invested in their ideas. Yeah, it becomes funnier because there there's a certain energy and passion that's coming out when you're when you're in those moments. Yeah, and and I think I, the audience feels it too. Oh, totally. I, I try to use the example with, with my kids who I'm mentoring is like you're uh, you're you're in a, you're a lawyer in a courtroom and mm-hmm. this is your closing statement. Right. 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 You know, in other words, you're 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 kind of on your toes and you're leaning into your ideas. You really want to communicate the ideas as opposed to I hope this gets a laugh. I mean, you can't wait to say your ideas. Right. 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 And it's you know, it's interesting to watch Louie work because you really feel that with him all the way through. Like there is nothing he's just shoveling in because it would get a laugh. You know, he can be clean for 20 minutes and then be anything he wants, but it just seems very connected to him. And um, he just, as a throwaway in one of his specials, he just, not in a mean way, it just goes, you don't matter at all <laughs> to the audience. Because that's part of what he, what he does. Well, yeah, that's his It's so much persona. better being rich, which is really fun. I fly first class. There's between me and Louis, I did a bit about flying first class, about feeling guilty. And just hundreds of people piling past me, little lost little kids. Why can't we stay here, mommy? And then just it just felt like like refugees, just just like <laughs> there's chickens and you know. And I'm just there with the Heineken and the newspaper, scared of flying. But and then he just had one. It's just so much better. My life's so much better than yours. And yeah, it's way better in first class. So right. But um, but that's his. That's his. Uh kind of persona that he's putting out there yeah yeah and it's and, it's it's great and so and, for, for me though yeah i totally agree the more you can um i didn't i wasn't um yeah i just didn't really love my ideas i was really wasn't there in the last special for where i wanted to get to it's it's okay but it was but but for this one i really uh, my number one mantra is i don't want to be boring to myself oh. and i want it funny second but with you know i just have but to, just interesting I just want it to be interesting. I really, uh, uh, when I see some uh, comedian do that, even with just one bit or their whole thing, when I see it, I like, I aspire to it. I go, well, well that's really interesting. And I do think it's from first, first being aware that that's your goal. And second, that allowing yourself permission to think outside the box, because you can be inside your own brand. Like this is what Flip Schultz does. And you know, but mm-hmm. I think everyone's trying to kind of extend one way or another. Absolutely. Uh, maybe some guys are trying to, um, you know, I've noticed some guys are really good writers are just starting to get a little more physical and throwing their voice a little more on the performance end, mm-hmm. you know, and then maybe some that have all the performance chops, you know, trying to, to write nourish out. the writing side. A little yeah. Bit, you know, so if you can get two to those together. Absolutely. Then, you know. I think you're, that's that's when you kind of become something comp- uh, just stellar. Are your is your audience interested in stand up at all? <laughs> this podcast. No, this is actually a cooking show. <laughs> I was going to ask like what uh what kind of chicken do you like? Because I didn't know you know it's but it's it's interesting to talk about. I didn't know if you had a theme or just no. This, it's podcast. just it's it's. You don't have out. a little nickname like what was uh Pete Holmes is like? It got weird or something. 
Oh, the podcast name? It gets philosophical, and, you know. My, this show, it's that I've, I've mentioned this many times on the show, but it's called What's for Dinner. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially the analogy of what's cooking on your mind. Oh, okay. So it's just, it's, yeah. it's, it's a hang session. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, uh, cause I know that the, the, the youngsters should be here soon, right? Pretty soon. Yeah. But, um, that's the la- one last thing I just wanted to touch on yeah. is, uh, what's really cool is, uh, your two boys, Tom and Dex, who have had mm-hmm. on the show before. Um, yes. they're, they're getting into stand up now. They're doing stand up. Yeah. A lot with you and a mm-hmm. lot of like, um, uh, mics out there little, around the little city. Quirky open mics and stuff. Yeah. How did 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 they come to you and said, "Dad, we want to try doing this"? Or did they you... just start doing it? Did you know they were doing it? Not initially. So but then did... I heard of it. Yeah, in up in San Francisco. Yeah. How did how did that discussion? Is that like them coming out going, "Dad, we got some news for you. We we we've been doing comedy." It just you know it wasn't quite official. It just sort of happened. I guess I just suddenly I heard they were, and I'm like, "Really, you're going? Yeah, we're going." And yeah, and then immediately I was curious about what they were doing and how they were doing it. You know. So you didn't know. try to dissuade him in any way? No, I, you know, I, um, I, I just wanted to make sure they loved it and loved the whole environment of it, and they do. They love it. So I mean, oh, they, they're very and they're very good. Like I'm not just saying that for as well. They, they, I like when I see them up there. Like I, I feel good when I see them. But there, it just takes a while, and and. You know, when I was doing it, I was still in college when I started doing it, and there was just Tuesday nights I'd miss, and I was just—it was so casual. I didn't have anyone going, "What well, you're headlining that, or have you made it?" Or, right. And in this YouTube kind of craze and thousands of people doing stand-up, you know, I just—it's the only thing is just to get everyone to kind of just be patient, you know. Right. But they're—they're um, they're doing well and they love it. So you throwing them a line or two in your well, day. <laughs> hey, I'm, I like I like I like writing with creative people. That's Yeah, that's I mean me. comedy writing, I find working on someone else's act just uh easier and more fun. I don't know what that psychology uh, is. I know exactly what you mean because I think What it, is that? <laughs> you know what I think it is? Like cuz I think like for me personally, uh I know that um Oh, we have light. <laughs> yeah. Uh I know that for me uh like writing for myself, I've gotten to the point to where I know my voice, and I know if I come up with a with an idea, I could say, "Oh, I know I can make this funny," or eh, "It's mm-hmm. not really my, it's not really for me." And you know, and I have my my character too that I can, if I come right. up with something really dark, I know I could give it to the character and still yeah. be able to sell it. But um, but like I said, it's it's kind of become a this kind of second nature reflex yeah. as far as writing for myself. But I think like um, like when I fr- uh, when I first met you, I think in 08 at mm-hmm. Brea or something yeah. when you're getting ready for yeah, the special. Yeah, you gave me the best line of the special. I'd give you the best line of the special. <laughs> I, gave, I gave you a couple lines, and you gave me a nice credit, which I thank you for. Um, but I th- what, what's fun for me, it's like when I see, especially, you know, not just a comic like that, you know, is famous, but a comic that I, I enjoy watching, a comic mm-hmm. that I think is very funny. Um, and I see them doing something, and in my head I go... Oh, you know that you know would be really funny there too. It's like that. Uh, it, it's all it's it's kind of like a, almost a scavenger hunt within a joke. Yeah, you it's know, relaxing in a way. Cause yeah, it's not because your it's own not bit, my exactly. And it's just sort of like, oh, you know what you could also do. And, and and again, you can't substitute even if you see a tape of yourself and you're watching it. There's something about being in the audience, you know, and you're uh, someone, another comedian watching you. It's very useful. You're very objective. You know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, because you never truly see yourself. You can see yourself recorded, but you just don't ever really see you're, what you they're know. seeing at that moment. Yeah. You know, absolutely. So I think I, you're absolutely right. It's uh, 
for somebody to watch somebody else is very objective and it's like it's it's um which well, it's just basically getting another opinion yeah that you but sometimes an opinion you never even that never even occurred to you right that's it's what's the, uh it's the offshoots that's a, that's the f that's always really fun when you find another tributary to a bit you think is kind of done right right and right. then it leads you to this other bit you're like oh oh yeah you know. never never i think richard jenny was one of the best at, oh um, yeah yeah as far as mining a joke till it to its absolute core oh when yeah. you're like there's not the, the, he's 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 done ten minutes on on a coffee mugs. There's nowhere he oh my god another five brilliant minutes, yeah. Like I think uh, like he was one of my favorites. I would have loved to have known his process because I, I I just wondered if he was just one of those guys he'd write it, workshop in the club, listen, write it, you know, or whether it was you know he certainly was just so loaded up it just totally it just was it was dazzling really. Oh, it 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 was it was. Like watching Joe Lewis, yeah. you know, you know, or uh, Tyson in his prime. Just. He just didn't give the audience any room to like. They, it was they, he was just like a like a fighter, yeah. on his toes, right on top of boom, him. boom, boom, body yeah. blow, body blow, body yeah. blow, body blow, and people are just hunched over laughing. And there's a couple more coming at you. But you said something interesting the other night. Just remind me. It's kind of like movies and stuff, and stand ups, and also sketch comedy. It's like you know what's quotable. You know, like I think. Christopher Walken going need more cowbell you know right. it's like okay that's just that's gonna go on for maybe centuries right. or something <laughs> you know a perfect marriage of a which they I'd heard had done the skit without Walken tried it to get this sketch Will sketch I don't know if he wrote it by himself but or probably did um, with other people and then Walken came in I was just happened to be doing a guest spot that night for that sketch you know but you did I was I was like a guest on the show. I think I did George Bush Senior and he did Junior. Oh, on the Cowbell show. Oh, funny. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But it was just a perfect marriage of a of a of an actor, his voice with the absurdity of that. of that word of that yeah. line. Yeah. So that is something to aspire to. I love catchphrases. I love memorable phrases. You know. I you love, know. It's, you know. Uh, it's funny. I um, because you had mentioned to me from your uh, from your sketch show the sketch you did with uh, um, Colbert the. Uh, Skinheads from the Maine. The skinheads from yeah. Maine. Hilarious, by the way. Just hilarious. And I started going through, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, some more of the old clips. And I found this one of you and Lovitz on Dennis Miller's show mm -hmm. where you were doing battling catchphrases. Uh-huh. That, But you you have created some really long-lasting uh, catchphrases. Uh, I was uh, the king of the callbacks, he used to call me. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I can almost remember when I was just riffing the church lady by myself in that little club in the hate and when i first just said well isn't that special and then all of a sudden it gets a laugh and it's funnier the more times you hear it the definition of a catchphrase because people use the word silly a lot oh it's a catchphrase oh and it's silly but you know what I, for myself and anyone else try come up with one yeah. that's going to be funnier the hundredth time right see because i always felt like the one of the dreams of stand-up or comedy is to be back with your friends in, in high school giggling. Yeah, absolutely. And all you did was redundant catchphrases, or you do this silly impression of the PE coach over and over again. That's the that's really the core of comedy. It's not just moving on to another subject. You're winding down, and you have catchphrases with your peers and your friends or yeah. your wife, you know. And um, would shut the fuck up be a catchphrase? <laughs> yes, <laughs> one of the originals. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think it was more conscious. That was more organic. I think it was conscious when we were trying to do Hans and Franz 
Um, we pump want you to up. pump you, you up. up. So that was more almost satirically a catchphrase. Because <laughs> those it, guys wanted to have a catchphrase. Hans right. Franz did, you know, where the church slave wasn't especially trying to have a catchphrase. So. <laughs> Um, but I love I love love to have more anthems and especially I'm going to shoot more more catchphrases. So I, I think you, I think this uh, next special like based on the stuff that I've been saying I think you're definitely going to uh, to um, hit a different a, a better I shouldn't say better a newer level. Well, I would say <clears throat> it's better. Yeah. Well, then I'll say it better. But I would also say that you know, like Burt Lancaster told me many years ago. Um, it's really for the young people, you know. I don't. I just want to please myself at this point. I don't expect to uh, blow up. But you know, if my peers like it, people like you and my wife, my, you know, like I said, those core people, I'd be excited. You know, um, when you're on Saturday Night Live and you say, "Isn't that special?" and there's 25 million people watching, that's the bully pulpit, and you know that's just going to go. Mm-hmm. You know, to break through with a special. I mean, there's great specials, but I don't see people quoting them on the street or on the radio or stuff. You know. It's difficult in this it's a, the climate, but going back to our almost our first thing, that's fine with me. Yep. The other thing is, it's a it's it's on a shelf, in a, you know, in the cloud or a metaphorical right. library for eternity. So it's just there for anyone to pluck to pluck. And who, yeah, I think the amazing thing now, especially like you're saying, with the cloud and the internet and the longevity of these things, is you'll never know when somebody might pluck it and go, "This is hilarious." and tweet it or whatever mm-hmm. and it becomes this viral thing and a special that somebody did three years ago suddenly has this huge resurgence That's because true. of a yeah. of a viral uh yeah phenomenon yeah, uh, yeah. well we'll see i is certainly quite a build-up for whoever's listening to this <laughs> i'm counting on this being too fractured so no one will be yeah you know i saw i heard your thing would flip i thought this would be quite frankly a little more Oh, I I think this was wonderful, and thank you for doing it, my friend. No, we'll do it. We'll do it again. It was a uh, very, very, um, very relaxing. Really, I didn't feel any pressure to. Well, but there, I, I wasn't I, trying to pander. I, I would hope you wouldn't. No, you're, not at all. You're that, not a pander. I think bear. podcasts are great. I do. This is something that I do just to keep myself creative. You know, I don't. I I honestly. I, and this is. I'm not sure if this is a fault of me. I don't even know what my listenership is. I, just, I don't need to know. I mean, I I would say just like I'd rather I would rather have failed at trying to do comedy than succeed in anything else. else. If I could do a podcast and make the kind of money I make everything else, I might pretty much just do the podcast. Oh, and sometimes do it on stage. Well, well people, people are doing I, that now. As far as pure fun, I find the discovery phase the most fun. And oh, if you're po- podcasting and, and riffing on things, you know. Um, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, you know, just yeah, that was a complete riff that 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 wasn't a like for for those who aren't in the know and you could uh you could um well I did uh, it yeah I had the notion I did it with Bill Hader we did a photo shoot right I, I saw million, that interview a million hits or two million hits yeah so then I wait so you, so you riff that just with Bill on that photo shoot yeah oh wow yeah and I it was very short it was thirty seconds and Bill's the world's greatest audience for a brilliant comedian nobody's laughs harder than Bill. So that was really fun. And then I've just been riffing it in the clubs and I'll put it aside for a while because I got kind of tired of it mm-hmm. and I'm going to bring it back around. So, Sorry. Somebody keeps beeping in. No. But the the emotional core of that is just like for baby boomers, you just want to visit with John and Paul. 
Right. You know, and they can comment. Also, it's a, it's an easy box to put in how far we've changed since 1980. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, as I say, it's a, it's a wonderful box, wonderful package. Yeah, because then it's your, yeah, you're talking to a guy from 1980 who happens to be John Lennon right. with Paul. And um, I, I don't know. I've played around with the thing if you, because Robin used to do it and others have, but he used to do his whole special. And then at the very end, he'd be the, He'd be like an old man. Oh, know. right, right. Well, this isn't real. Yeah, yeah, nothing real. Woo. If they can't take a fuck, whatever he says, right. you know. So I just... Lord I Byron said that life yeah. is a garden. Well, I'd like it. to get all the laughs with John and Paul and then just have John say, Paul, what, John? We were, we were really good, weren't we? The best, John. You know, I just... I think that's another thing I aspire to. Something that will just get you a little bit the hair on your back the neck. Just a little tweak. Those are that's a whole other kind of level. Yeah, well, I, th- I think Robin did that too in Live at the Met when. Uh, oh, he always did something at the end when he talked to, when he called back his son. Yeah, and he goes like, you know, Dad. Well, well, Zach, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Right. Hey, how do you get to the Met? Practice. Right. Ready? Yeah. Fuck it. And then he called back the fuck it and like walked off holding his dad's hand. Yeah. 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 So like, that was, you know, Robin. Robin did that. I, I, I wouldn't force it, but you know. But yeah, if it happened, if it, if it's there, it's a whole other kind of, you know. Uh, mostly, I still want to destroy though. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was gonna ask, like, are you? Uh, and by the way, when, whenever. Yeah, you, we should wind up, but yeah, we're good. Yeah, no, no. no we're, what, we're, what were you gonna say? I was just gonna. Thought. We don't I, I was, I was going to ask, like, are you, are you ever afraid of the silence when you're kind of a, like trying to yes. find it? Yes. You're afraid of so you're. Yeah. So if 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 you say you're you're. You're with the John and the and the Paul, and you're trying to find that nice kind of cathartic, yeah. you know, bow, and it's not quite, you know, and, and you're 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 tiptoeing trying to find it, and the audience is listening, but they're not mm-hmm. laughing. It's they're a, not- I'm getting used to it. I'm I'm getting better at it. You know, I would say I write on my yellow pad. My goal is to bomb. My goal is to bomb. But you know, the, when I'm hopefully my brain will become a little more facile as I do more of this stand up and. And um, also, it's just an energy thing. But some nights, yeah, you are you get sort of it's almost self hypnotic if you get really involved in a character, mm-hmm. and then that that voice of judgment just quiets down. All my best sets are that voice in the back of your head that's re- giving you a report card during your set. Right, right, that right. killed better the first show. I kind of rushed that. Oh, I dropped that line. Right. I better get to this. When you bear when that voice is d- silent. Then that's where you want to get. That's a, I couldn't agree more. I could not agree not more. Not get out of your own way is the whole goal of any mm-hmm. kind of art. <laughs> yeah. no. With a small A. It sounds pretentious, but yeah, just getting out of your way. That's, that's the toughest part. But I'm getting better at it, you know. Um, I would say, yeah. I think you got a future in this. I'm going to be honest with you. You know, it's interesting. Yeah, I still, it's still really fun. <laughs> You're, we're 20 years apart, but you'll be enjoying this for a long time. To oh, come. I, I never want to stop. That, that's, yeah. that's, and you'll be, you'll keep growing too, because I can tell you want to. That's what I love about it. You're never done. No, that's that's the great best thing about this. You never reach that that end goal because they're once you've hit the goal you think you wanted, suddenly you're like, well, there's still more to still more to go. Oh yeah, yeah. There's, it, there's no one no one will ever figure comedy out completely. That's nobody. That's what I love thank about God. it. Thank God. Yes, thank God. That's indeed. a perfect line to end on. Perfect. <laughs> All <laughs> right. Well, thanks for listening, guys, and uh, thank you, Dana. My pleasure. All right. See we'll you next week. Okay. Bye. What's for dinner? What's for dinner? What? What's for dinner? Talking, talking about what's ever on their minds. Talking, talking about what's ever on their minds. Talking, talking about what's ever on their minds.